0: What would you think? Okay, there's no... By now, uh, or at least as of today, I would guess that uh, the secret's out after you read the last chapter. You should be able to, I would think now, read the next bit with utter familiarity about what we're doing. Um, Was there anything that struck you? Whenever I ask you that, you never say anything, so I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong question. Where are we? Where are we? (laughs) This, the, uh, you, see, you see my administrative capabilities, uh, got a tight grip on the group. <laughs> we are on the Israel chapter, chapter 6. See, I just always presume that you'll go to the next chapter, short of being hit by a bus. We did God the whole time. What are you talking about, we never got to God? Okay, there's two kinds of college professors. There's the kind that stand up, and for all of you who went to Thirsty Thursday and didn't get your uh, reading done, they tell you what was in the book. And then there are the other ones who presume that you read, and you talk about things that might be related to the book. I thought I was the latter. Perhaps I should be the former. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Ah, go ahead, (laughs) all right, you people, you people, always talking about God, all right, go ahead, 59, what's cooking? Yes, right, right. Right. I think that. That's what you thought heaven was. Yeah. Right. Good. Thank you very much. Do you see that bit on 59? <laughs> you want to go upstairs and get another book, because I really think the possibility of finding the other book are very slim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know. I just you could do you could do a psychological study on why men like me marry women like her. I mean, there's just something. I, I'm not repenting No, I just isn't it. Don't you find it fascinating? I mean, I myself find it fascinating. I'm just like, what is going on? I just you know. It is, it is. something. It's something about what the Lord is up to. I mean, I'm not. I'm not being. I'm. I mean, it fascinating in the legitimate sense of the term. I'm just like. He, he did, but there are females who are as anal retentive as I am. I've yeah, bumped he into. Sense. He does. Yes. See, there's a range. You see the range of possible things here. What could be going on? He's God's just having a good laugh, over an extended period of time. I mean, that just is, you know, that could be it. I don't... Over a long marriage. Uh, over a long marriage, yeah. I suppose the longer it is, the funnier it is, maybe, huh? Is it not? Probably so. All right. Um, partly, part of your question, I just, he's actually written another book, which uh, one of you was kind enough to buy me this week as a gift, so thank you very much. The book after this um, is actually a book about a complete rethinking of heaven and the resurrection. But that little toss-away comment there... I think identifies a very much uh, what's been a problem in the church for hundreds of years. And actually, just so just to give it a historical context, it was sort of the impetus for liberation theology, feminist theology, black theology in the last 50, 60 years. Because what happens is, is if you only think of heaven as a point out here, and you're here, and hell is here, these are flames. Whew, <laughs> Yeah, and so you don't want to go this way. All you want to do is go this way. And real honestly, this is a little like what I said this morning, when the chips are down, all you really care about is you getting to here. What happens is, is all this time, which is known as your life, becomes utterly self-focused. It's anti-community. It's anti poor it's anti-disadvantaged, it's anti-everything Jesus stood for, because we define hell as being really hot, and we define heaven as being temperate. And therefore, if this is all that we care about is that we get gathered up, you know, I've said this upstairs a zillion times, forgiveness of sins, justification, salvation is not the last thing, it's the first thing. And for hundreds of years, it's very easy to do things like have slaves, because you know what? God will sort it out in this life. Or say, the poor you will always have with you, so let them be poor, right? I mean, this is, this is what he's against. What he's basically saying is, you excuse, not you, but the church has excused itself, often, Christians have used this as an excuse to not engage the world. And of course, what he's trying to do here is say, Man, what we're all about is engaging the world. And these four things that he gives you are sort of doors into the present world. Like, just think about our prayers upstairs, okay? Here's here's what you were really asking about. You were basically saying, there's no order and there's no justice in creation. The economy's upside down, right? So you heard this morning that OPEC cut oil production, right? Which will raise the cost of your gas at precisely the time that you don't have very much money which will make the stock market drop, which means all the money that they had at $150 a barrel oil, they can now buy things that are cost, you know, $50. I mean, it's this great, and we would say, that's utterly unjust, there's no order in the world. Or what you're basically saying is, ouch, my soul hurts, there's stress with people, they're losing their jobs, it's hard to know where they are. People come apart, they fray at the edges, families disintegrate, people don't act like they should act. That's all questions about, um, those are all questions about, you know, whether your spirituality sticks at a time like this. Or the world is an ugly place. That's a question about beauty. I mean, this is just like, all you need to do is translate your own circumstance. But the reason he says that is, is that the church has settled for that. If you go like about four lines down or five, I think he gives you the rest of the deal. Heaven has this meaning not because in the earliest Christian traditions it was the final destination of the redeemed, but because the word offers a way of talking about God, of talking about where God always is, so that the promises held out the phrase going to heaven, where he's been all along. Thus heaven is not just a future reality, but a present one. So if you actually believe that Christ is in the spoken word, Christ is in baptism, this is right up I mean, this is this is right up the Lutheran alley. If you believe that Christ is actually in a preached sermon, that that's a sacramental act, C.F. Gainig's dissertation. If you actually believe that, the, that Christ is in the Eucharist present, that Christ is, now in book, that Christ is in your poor neighbor, you live in a different way. Uh, you know. And then we meet the question, as before, from a different angle. So you just simply think about your life in a different way. Now, it is, I haven't read his next book, and I think there's some quibbles about you know, how, wh- how he does things, but at least for that, I think what he's, what he's up to there. Which, knowing you, I would think you would, that, actually, you would welcome that definition of a more inclusive, I, from what I know about you, you would welcome that definition of a more, uh, you asked the question last time about um, social gospel, and the reason Lutherans rebelled against that is that it came apart the social part, you could have done it without Jesus. That's what—that's why Lutherans rebelled against it. It doesn't mean you don't do it, it just means that you do it because of Jesus. You just, they just wanted the Jesus, the gospel back, in the social gospel. So it's not like wow. Yeah, I wanna say yes, but then I'm always, you know, uh, wondering what the next question is gonna be. <laughs> so, okay. <clears throat> I presume that you would. So, yes, motive is everything. And Christ is motive. This is why we don't have to fear good works. This is the whole, you know, it's coming up to Reformation Sunday. Yeah, there was a time when they sold you salvation for a buck. That's not our problem today. We have a very different problem. We live in a very different world. And, um, yeah, motive is everything. If, if you Because... We were talking about how the angel came to Mary this morning for about half an hour, and what it must have been like for her when God spoke in a way that he loved her so. It would have been unthinkable for a faithful person to say no. That's how you should see your life too. God loves you so, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable for any of you to live in a way that doesn't absolutely positively line up with the life of Christ. And for too long, we've sort of said, oh, geez, well, every time you talk about that, oh, it works right, you think you're working your way to heaven. I'm like, man, lose that. That is not where we are. If you're working your way to heaven, we'll let you know. But otherwise, get busy, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean you, you've never heard that from any of us. So when that's raised as... You know, if when that's raised as a reason not to talk about it, I'm just like, man, I'm gonna die before we get past this. I mean, and, and part of this is, I'll, just, I'll be honest with you, part of this is my own impatience. At some point, you know, come on. I mean, we, we're upstairs, but, you know, and I don't know everybody's everything, but very few of us are living in our cars, very few have had our gas turned off, very, almost everybody, I guess everybody here had a meal last night. How many million people go to, go to how many, just take kids. How many kids go to, go to sleep hungry? in America every night. That's unconscionable. That's why the church started schools, started hospitals, you know, gave out food. That's the reason the church does these things, because that's what Christ does. So if you have this narrow definition of heaven, it can really cripple you. But if you live eschatologically, that is, you see that you're already in heaven. I actually wonder sometimes, since there's no time in heaven, I wonder whether I'm in heaven already. And living with Kirby. I say to myself, just a little taste to have, trying to redeem that book thing from before. <laughs> Thank you very much. I I just I but I wonder. See, the thing is, is if you know if you know this is already yours, what you do then is you live. This is this is the interesting thing. You li- you actually live backwards. You you live your life backwards from this, which sort of puts everything that's happening in the economy in perspective. You know. Just, yeah, your lives are all different than they were last year at this time. But it puts, it keeps things in perspective. And collectively, you try to stay calm and collectively try to care for the people who suffer. That's very different than saying, I got mine, I'm in, that's all there is. So that's, that's his primary objective, I believe. You're welcome. It's a great question. It goes to the heart of what we're trying to do. Yes, please. Right, you remember I selected the text for the reading this morning, that don't you know you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? And I did that on purpose. Heaven is wherever God makes his home. And one of the places he makes his home is in you, Donna. He makes his home in you. Okay, We're going to talk about what the name meant, and you had the sacred name. We talked a lot in, in the chapter that we may or may not have read about the sacred name. But... You remember this, I, I mean, you, if you were in the new members class any time in the last five or six years, I always talk about this, how did the building, they built a building, and then how did it become the temple? It became the temple because God moved in, and he moved in by putting his name there. That's why when we, when we move next door, we'll have this great service where we'll touch everything and put the sign of the cross on it and put the name to it and reserve it for holy thing. That's the point where God moves in, you know? i got so many sassy things to say with the Dow down 14%, I don't think I can say them. So, Gainig wants to clear the altar, rub it with oil, and kiss it. Because that's what you do, because the altar is the body of Christ. Now, see, you might find that odd, but how many of you object to stripping of the altar on Monday, Thursday? None of you. Why do you strip the altar? Because you're stripping Jesus naked. And some altar guilds, I don't know if you know this, they come out and wash the altar the way they wash Jesus' body to prepare it for the tomb. You know that, have you ever seen that happen? It's in the, it's in the liturgy, actually. It's in our liturgy, right? So, so, anyway, the point of all that is where God puts his name, there he dwells. There are some places he puts it, you know, obviously on his altar, in his font, in his people, but you're then to live in imitation of heaven. So you have to be very careful how we talk to each other, treat each other, what we say about each other, how we engage each other, you know? So this, this is very important. Okay, what else? You have questions about the God chapter? I'll happily do the God chapter. I thought, this is what, literally, I thought to myself last week, well, they, they sort of got through the God chapter and didn't learn anything new there, so we just sort of pressed on. But uh, do you have more more stuff from the God chapter you're curious about? <laughs> did anybody just so just so I didn't completely screw this up? Did anybody read the Israel chapter? You did. So I got some of you. Okay, so all right, I tell you what. You peek around a little bit, and I'm gonna uh, let me just hopefully what I can. All right, you want to hear a card from a postmodern? Okay, here's a card from a postmodern, okay? The Parisians love life, and Paris loves being lived in. The black wrought iron and the gardens, and the street musicians, and the turning leaves, and the people piled four tables deep outside the cafes. And bread and cheese and wine, and a picnic on the Seine. And then there's Monet's lilies. Rachel got a hat and smelled for four days. I watched the world go by. We sang with the saints in Latin at Notre Dame, bathed in the blue light of the rose windows eight stories up. Then we stepped outside to find street musicians, moving a piano with a dolly, playing Kansas City with more swing than all Germany could muster. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Rest and beauty are rare things in a fallen world. And you gave us both. That's a postmodern. See, what matters? Not stuff. What matters is rest and beauty. Or I gave you the bit from David Brown. This is Gainig's um, advisor. Look at the connection between suffering and beauty here. So cease to look in. See that? What's the whole modern effort? Look inside yourself. Think really hard. Your private personal relationship with Jesus. Right? American evangelicalism. Stop looking at yourself. Cease to look in. Look out, and you will discover a wonderful world that reflects its source in a loving creator. Then when suffering strikes, that suffering will not seem quite so overwhelming or so hard to bear, because it is, in truth, not the only thing that matters to you. Not only that, God in Christ will be there alongside you, looking out on that same world from Calvary in much the same way, not just toward his Father, but also toward the world at large, as itself something to be valued and cherished. God grant us that grace. You see that? This is exactly what you're talking about. This is the question you asked. So you don't just stand here and look at this. You look back at all of this, and you live in this. And when it's, you suffer, you say, well, that suffering's not the end of the story. There was the question about where's God at 9-11, and then my answer was, he's in the towers as they come tumbling down. You know, When you're drowned by the tsunami, you say, that's the sort of stuff that baptized me. You know? see, so you, you start to think about the world in a different way. But... Hopefully, by the time you get to the Israel bit, um, what you you started it all started to become very familiar. So what you've seen so far, if you just sort of if you work through it, you remember how it started. It's all about Christ, and then I tried to convince you that it's always everybody, everywhere, everything. So you can't say, well, you go do mission work and you say, well, we wouldn't give them the full blast liturgy. They could never understand that. That's that's a horrible, pedantic, white man thing to say. And then what Christ is concerned about the world. How do you know? He put himself into the world in flesh and blood. And what world do you live in? You just happen to live in the world that right now has all sorts of interest in justice, in spirituality, in community, and in beauty. That just happens to be the world you're living in, and that's the world that Christ tells you to go to. But, now, I, you made this connection. You must have made this connection. How does the Lord bring justice to the world? You who read, what, how does He bring it? How do you get justice? You need a king. So say, hold, hold the punchline because it is that you need a king. How do you get spirituality? Says the scriptures. You need a rabbi, uh, and what does the rabbi teach you? Torah. Right. Okay. You need a community. What is uh, what what community do you get? Where does the Old Testament give you community? I'm sorry, I, I mixed these up. That's right. I felt that didn't feel right when I wrote it. The temple is this. This is Torah. How do you hold the community together? The Torah. And for beauty, what is it that the Lord gives? How does He give his people beauty? What's the promise? Yeah, new creation. Eden comes back. We had a long discussion in elders about whether. Psalm 23 is uh, about Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who cares for sheep, or whether that's about baptism, confirmation, um, absolution, and the Holy Supper. Remember when Reardon was here on Saturday, he said, well, everybody knows Psalm 23 is the sacramental psalm of initiation. And then I looked around there and everybody's going. <laughs> but of course, if you think about it as <clears throat> they're in the wilderness, you know, like, where nothing flourishes, but he makes everything green. Pastor Nelson gave a masterful, a masterful exposition of this from Mark's Gospel about how Yahweh comes in the midst of his enemies. You know, the wilderness where Jesus gets tempted, just like you get tempted, and he gathers you up, and he takes you to water that refreshes you, and he puts oil on your head. Where did we ever hear that before? And then he sets out a table with a cup that overflows. Newsflash, sheep don't eat a tables. <laughs> it's not about sheep. okay? It's about you going to the Eucharist. That's what it's about. And Christ is the one who prepares the table. It's his table. okay? So here's the thing. Now you can begin to talk to people when they don't know how to talk. So let's just take today. How are you going to talk to people as you go out today? What are your friends going to be concerned about? They're going to be concerned about the economy; they really are. And they're going to be what? does what the ki- what does a king do? He brings order. Right? There are these extra things that come. One of the things the king brings is order. Or what are that we've told you this a hundred million times? But what are the you can you can boil almost every pastoral thing down into two things. What you remember we talked about this? You're either you, what do you fear most? What do people fear most? Yeah, that they're lonely and unloved. So what's going to happen if you're the only one who loses your job and everybody else just goes along like everything else? You know, we've had people here who have lost jobs and just disappeared. They won't take our phone calls. They didn't leave a forwarding address. We didn't know where they are. Two or three years later, they pop up somewhere 60 miles away in another church because we know enough people, we bump into them. But why do they leave? Because they're humiliated, because they're afraid. Not only are they alone, they're unloved. Right? I mean, those are the people. What else? I mean, what other troubles do you have? The, one of the one of the consequences of being horribly ill, and among some of the prayers we talked about today, um, you know, what what are people worried about? They're worried about ugliness. They're worried about being deformed. They're they're worried about not being like everybody else. What are you going to say to people like that? When people go for horrible, you girls, what's going on over there? Don't make me make you sit, I'll separate you, I will. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's exactly what I was talking about. I was talking about (laughs) deformity from serious illness and you're thinking about, hey, does this make my butt look fat? (laughs) You're right. It's the same thing. I was I was that is what the book was. That was chapter 7 was about that. Sorry, Faye. you saw me at my worst there. care what you They care what And they care about whether they look They don't care about what. Oh yeah, I mean, as soon as I as soon as I figured out that women dress for women, the whole world became clear to me. I mean, that all just it all just like the world opened up. It was like a new place for me. I didn't, you know. It does at the at the most shallow level. You're, yes, you're right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, but these are nevertheless real concerns for us, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a small yes, it is a small example of a bigger point. yes it is. Hmm hmm. So, oh, I'm so discombobulated I have my book upside down. <clears throat> now, the payoff punch for all of this is which I, I hope that you would have gotten, is um, where do you see the ultimate expression of Torah in the New Testament? Anybody know? Think about Jesus as the new Moses. Where do you hear about that? Where, where do, where do you, where's Jesus most Moses like in the New Testament? There's a couple of places, but take, pick one. Transfiguration? Transfiguration is one. What did you say in the... He does when he gathers his twelve in Jerusalem. Yeah. Okay. So where and where, what do most people think of it as his ultimate teaching point? Yeah, Sermon on the, Sermon on the Mount. Mount. Okay. So what's the Sermon on the Mount about? If you had to say this is where now this is be, this is we're going to come back now. You know your your worry in the early weeks was that hey you know this isn't you know this isn't coming back to all the Sunday school stories I need. Au contraire, your Sunday school stories are needed right now. What did you learn about the Sermon on the Mount? What did you learn? Can you remember? remember the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. What is that about? The yes, the lilies are better dressed. That's exactly right. The Stop world worrying. World is not yeah, the world's not. So, you know, there's a lot of this. And when you get persecuted, say thanks very much. May I have another? Okay, but what did you what did you learn about that? What what good is that? Yes, but it's very hard. when, when Good, but people are... Uh, so let me put, put, yes, you're right, you're right, that is how normally, and some people say he's being a better, bigger Moses than Moses was. Moses only had ten rules, now you've got a ton of rules. Okay, so let me just ask you, and you'll know the answer as soon as I ask this, and then you'll say, you know, it wasn't a fair question, but I'm going to ask anyway, is the Sermon on the Mount about you or is it about Jesus? Stanley Hauerwas, who's a you know, big-name theologian. In fact, Time said he was the theologian in America. This about ten years ago. He gave a lecture at Wheaton College. They have some very nice conferences. We went down the hill and sat up front. And we listened to him. and He basically gave this paper that said, The Sermon on the Mount takes its incarnate form in Christ. To which we sort of said, Yeah, that's what Luther always said. That's what Luther's always said. The, the audience was stunned. They'd never sort of heard this. They thought that what Jesus was doing was giving them a lot of rules, shape up, and when they're running a spear through you, you say, bless you, you know. I mean, it is, of course, about that. But first and foremost, the Torah, I mean, think back to Romans, like chapter 10, where it says, um, Christ is the telos, the end point, the fulfillment of the law, right? Christ is the ultimate one. Okay, now, here's the thing. Tell me the story about, when Jesus said, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And then he says, there'll be a time when there won't be one stone left upon another. Do you remember this story? And then what's the next part after that? Tear it down and? Right. And they were horrified and they brought that later as data against him in his trial. He said it'll destroy the temple. And then, of course, it's John's gospel, is it not, that gives the tagline of saying, of course, Jesus was talking about. Yeah. So, okay, well, so here it is. Perfect community is found in Christ. Perfect temple is found in Christ. <clears throat> Come on now. Prophet, priest, king, Isaiah, a virgin will conceive, embarrassed son, suffering servant. Who is it? The perfect king is Christ. And of course, read Revelation sometime. The perfect beauty is when the Lamb, who are these? These are they who have washed their robes, right? The, and the blood of the Lamb, who have come through the great tribulation unscathed, and the Lamb sits on his throne and he gathers his people. What else is that? But Jesus instituting. Have you ever read the last chapter of the Bible next to the first chapter of the Bible? Go home and read them next to each other. There was a land that had rivers and was well watered and trees grew everywhere. There was a land that was well watered and the, and the rivers ran through it. Have you ever read them? Read them next to each other. The first chapter and the last chapter of the Bible are the same chapter. It's Old Eden and New Eden, and Christ is the consummate Eden. So all this is done. All he's—I mean, this is this is such a simple thing that the church has forgotten. He's basically saying it's all about Christ, and it's Christ in the world. So his heaven comment, for example, says you shouldn't just think it's about you getting to heaven. Jesus really intended much more. How do you know Jesus intended that? He intended that because he talked about, Christ is the king, Christ is the temple, Christ fulfilling the law, Christ bringing back a new creation. Hey, and guess what? We're in a world that suddenly cares about that again. Congratulations. The church needs to get busy. That's all this is. Now the question for you is, you have to learn to start talking to your friends. And you know, this isn't gonna be a 100% correspondence, but when you go out and ask your friends, what's troubling you or what's important? Pretty much anything they say is going to end up in one of these four categories, which then plays right to your sweet spot because you already have stories about each of these things. right? So how do you get to be the king? Do you remember? How do you get to be the king? Why is Jesus the king? Remember what happens to him? How does he mark him? How does, how does, how does David get to be the king? And of course you know, what's the, what's the Hebrew word for anointed one? messiah and what's that's the hebrew and what's the greek for that christ yeah and then how do you get to be christ's little child yeah you get yourself anointed with the holy spirit and you get named what happens when you get the name what does god do to you when he gets the name he does the same thing to you that he does to the temple when he puts his name there what does he do He dwells there, but he owns it. Yeah, you're right. He dwells there. I didn't mean but as something different. He dwells there and he owns it. He's completely committed to it. So it's impossible for you ever to be alone or unloved. It's just impossible for you because Christ is always with you. Wherever you go, Christ is with you in there. People can't say, if you say, I'm all alone for a Christian, that's actually a lie. There's never a time when you're all alone. If you say, I'm unloved for a Christian, You can never really say that. Now, the thing is, is if somebody says that to you, I feel so alone, you say, liar! This isn't probably the best thing you can say to them. But you can, of course, begin to tell your friends about a Jesus who loves you so that he puts himself on you and in you, or even a softer way to talk about a Jesus who touches you. A Jesus who actually touches you. Isaiah 6, I went to heaven, to the new creation, and what did he do? They took a coal from the altar. The, the, he, 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 he took a tongs and he took a coal from the altar. And he touched me on my lips and he made me holy. What happens at the altar? Why do we sing holy, holy, holy? Same thing that they sung in Isaiah 6. Because the pastor takes something from the altar and he touches it to your lips and makes you holy. It's a startlingly powerful way to talk. When people are sick... If you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but have you ever visited somebody in the hospital where you have to gown up? I mean, your healthcare workers are out of the picture here, but it's every day for you. But have you been where they have the sign on the door that says gloves and gowns, mask? Yeah, you ever done that? Yeah, well, oh, really? Hmm. Okay, so there's a bit of fear of trepidation when you do that. What are you, what are you afraid of? What does that mean? Yeah, they got something you don't want. It can also mean that you have something they don't want. But not necessarily, it can mean that's what I mean. Yeah, it's not necessary, but normally people's first response is not, "I might give them something." Normally people's first response is, "They might give me something, right? Right? Yeah, and so it's maybe I'll call them. yeah. I'll send flowers. That's right. That's how people talk, right? so when you when you actually go to the hospital with people, insofar as you're able, now. You, don't, you, know, you teach vicars not to like, flop down on the bed and sprawl out because you know, sometimes your stitches hurt when the vicar does that. So you say, like, don't like bang into the bed. But, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know, you, can, you have a range of images going through your head. But one of the important things to do is to touch people. Why? Because when you touch people, what happens? It means you're not afraid of them. They don't need to be afraid of you. Why is, why does it say in the scriptures, when somebody's sick's call together and anoint them with oil? Why is that? It's touching people. You're telling people, you're okay, you're still part of the community, we still value you, we still love you. See? Nursing home residents need- Exactly, right. Because they are outside the community. That's right. See your whole life boils down to these. You can begin to analyze your entire life according to these categories. However, you're going to have to learn some Bible stories along the way, okay? And you're also going to have to, and I wish I wanted to erase the first thing that I put up there because the heaven question was such a good question, but you're also going to have to show people that they're on this continuum that goes from here to there, and we're not there yet. And now you see, so when people are suffering here, not everybody's going to believe you that it's going to work out at the end of the day. Not everybody's going to believe you, okay? Okay? Which is why then, this is what I said upstairs, it's important that when the press is on, you act like community. This is supposed to act like this, you see, even when you're here. So you touch people, or love people, or speak kindly to people, even in the midst of trouble, go ahead. You can live with us. Well, I know, but I mean, really, that wouldn't be so bad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be so bad because yeah, right. there, there would be so many things that we'd still, you know, but Let me so ask how you, do you, yeah. Let me give you a desk answer, and then I'll give you a, a real answer, a practical answer. But the desk answer isn't wrong. Your presumption is, in your question, the presumption is that somehow God doesn't deliver. Okay? When you say, why doesn't God give the same amount? The scriptural text says, he gives his gifts without measure. Okay? So now the question would be, so maybe there's a different way to think about the question. That is the way we think about that. Why doesn't God give me what he's given you, for example, right? But it may be the other way around. It may be that he gives each his gifts without measure. And then people treat those gifts or use those gifts in very different ways. And there are consequences for how that's used. Okay? So, I just tell you, I mean, you know you know we've stirred the pot a little bit with this letter that went out to families about church attendance. I just be real honest with you. there are a couple of things that surprise me one is i 'm surprised well i 'm surprised by a bunch of things, but one of the things i'm i 'm interested in or surprised about is that people somehow suggest we 're doing something wrong by saying they should be in church every week, and this is a great example because For the school, we just say, would you be in three out of four Sundays? The third commandment says, be there every Sunday. Unless your ox or ass falls in a well, you've got to be there every Sunday. Because that's where the community meets, and you're part of the community. That's where real beauty comes. This is where Christ is king, and that's where your soul is fed. Okay? So there's a palpable difference between people who come to church 10 times a year and people who come 50 times a year. We send a letter to, basically, school families promise that they'll come to church. It basically boils down to this. If you have a kid in the school and you come to church, we give you $100. We give you $100 for every kid you bring to church. But some people are taking the $100 and not coming to church. That makes us cranky. It's just as simple as that. So if you have a kid in the school and you're a member of St. John, you get $100 every time your kid sits in the pew. Don't take the money if you don't come to church. It's a a way of us blessing you as community, making it easy for you to have a kid kid in school. Yeah. People reverse that and suggest somehow we're being horrible when we say, you signed a contract that said you'd come to church. You haven't come to church. We're we're not going to enforce the contract. We'll give you another four weeks. And then we're going to enforce the contract because you said you would and you wouldn't. And then somehow people get crabby at us. We're just like, you signed the contract. But see, there's a deeper thing there. Why do we have them sign a contract? Why do we give a break? Why do we want kids in church? Because we want to expose them to gifts. I'll say that there's a palpable difference between people who are in church 50 times a year, people who are in 10 times a year, and people who are in once a year. There's a palpable difference in those people. So I'd reverse the question and say, <clears throat> he gives his gifts without measure. We each use our gifts differently. Some, And this is the parable of the talents. We ignore them. We bury them we complain about them, we use them, we use them better, we use them best. And I think it's a much more fruitful way. That's one way to think. The other thing is, is there are times, and this just read the biblical stories. I mean, you've read the biblical stories, but maybe you don't believe them in this sense. There are times, read the prophets. There are times where the prophets go spiritually dry. So Elijah says, where, where are you, Elijah. I'm out here under this rock waiting to die. Why? I'm the last man who hasn't bowed his knee to Baal. Kill me, right? What's interesting is the Lord actually does kill him. That's the next thing that happens. He takes him to Elisha and then he kills him. Right? He's gone. In a sense. Right? Okay. So part of it is this, and part part one of the interesting things this this is that I have to kind of remind the young guys of this. A lot of times when people are mad, one of the things that we're always surprised about, and with this letter, one of the surprising things is how people talk to us. I would never talk to a pastor the way people talk to me. I'm very surprised by that, too. But one of the things that they have to remember is when people are mad at God, the closest they can't get a glove on him, but they can get a glove on the pastor. Okay. So, so there's a range of things here, but let's not start with let's not start with God. Let's start with us. So I can give you a prescription. Here's my prescription for you. Be at the Eucharist every Sunday. When temptation comes to you, pray the Kyrie or the Jesus prayer. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When you see it coming... I would love to. I would love to know. I would love to know how many people, when they see temptation coming, pray that, or do they go someplace and unload first? See? we know, we know what builds a soul. The church has known for four thousand years what builds a soul. It's the great Chesterton quote: Christianity hasn't failed; it's just never been tried. So, so I would just I would spin the question in a different way. And you have to have an extraordinarily mature community that says, this is how we live together. This is what we do. This is how we act. This, it, was, it was fascinating when Reardon was here, Father Patrick was here you know, last Saturday. There were sort of giggles in the crowd and people were very much drawn to him because he spoke about the things that he did. But do you know, all know how authoritarian Orthodox religion is? Do you know what it's like in Father Reardon's parish? when he speaks there is no disagreement okay so i mean what people like is they like the effectiveness of that but they don't like the consequence of that they love they love a god who'll get things done but they don't love a god who asks them to do anything and now we're back to the same old question yes please Like? They lose job. Right. Just trouble comes in. I mean, all kinds of things. Right. And we, as other Christians, yes. can help remove the blocks. That's right. Birth, so that you can have the same confidence that I might have. Like if Stacey's experiencing trouble. Right. I and we, we can help remove the blocks. That's, that's what birth. you're supposed to do. So rather than reacting to God doesn't love me my pastors are trying to stiff me I mean really honestly when I tell you to come to the Eucharist am I trying to stiff you just really think about this if I say to you your kids should be in church every Sunday according to the third commandment am I being kind to you or am I being mean to you I mean your choice there's We're apparently how we else will you grow way. Exactly, exactly. Our job is to get out of their way, but we can't apologize for what the Lord wants us to do. But, what, see, but it's so much in the initial reaction, which is, there's always this, I mean, just realize, so there's always this notion that God's trying to screw you. He's not. He's trying to love you. That accounts for way more than, maybe the Lord didn't give me as much as he gave you. It has much more to do with, we're utterly faithless, and we abuse the gifts. And we don't live in grace, and we don't confess, and we don't practice the disciplines, and we don't rejoice in the Eucharist. But, here's the way out, if you're at the Eucharist every time, and you say your prayers every day, and you seek consolation with your friends, and you sit quietly in the park from time to time, and you observe the joy that the Lord has put around you, your life is a different place so it's all in how we engage the world the thing the thing the pastors are good for is they know how to engage the world people don't often listen but we know and not because we're so smart we just know what the church has done for 4,000 years pray the Psalms I was fascinated by the fact that all Reardon came and said and I was grateful I mean we knew what he was going to do but he, he was a big hit just by saying to you why don't you pray the Psalms which I mean we've said that to you a thousand times but you know, since he said it to you and he's a guy from out of town with slides, you listened. Okay, you know, that's fine. That's what an expert is, a guy from out of town with slides, you know. So he said, That's great. Fantastic. Pray the psalms. What did he tell you to do? He told you to memorize the psalms and pray them. We didn't even be bold enough to say that. Memorize all the psalms and pray these in the morning, pray these at noon, pray these when you get dressed, and pray this when you take your dog for a walk, and pray this before you go to bed. Yes? I'm coming right to you. To do them in Hebrew, I know. He oh no, to the yeah, he did mm-hmm. he should, he should he not all. He didn't I say think, memorize all of them. Right. Name, like, yes. To memorize yeah. The right. Songs, right, right. Exactly. Right. No. No. But he did. But he, he did show you what the benefit. Of, yeah. But but here's the thing. So but he gave you a great story where he said, here's somebody who's suffering the ugliness of a dying relative. Did you? You were you? How many of you were here for him? So you heard this story. I mean, he's in a hospital. A Jewish woman mistakes him for a rabbi. Comes and asks him to pray. On the way up the elevator, discovers he's a pastor. He says, can I still pray? Then the line of the day was, she said, what will you say? And he said, nothing you can reasonably object to. (laughs) And because he knew, he'd memorized, I mean, he's a brilliant mind. uh, He'd memorized the Psalms in Hebrew, actually. He stood over her bed and recited the Psalms in Hebrew. And this woman took great comfort from that. See, and you see how brilliant that was, what an engagement that was? He just, and because of his great confidence, you would say, well, why didn't he tell her about the Gospel? He did tell her about the Gospel. Christ is in the Psalms. They're his Psalms. Right? It's about him. See? So I I take your point, but... um, but my, my point is simply, we know what to do and we don't do it. It's not that we don't know what to do. We know what to do. Our problem is we don't do it. Part of what I was trying to say to you upstairs is, hey, guess what? The world has your attention today. Why don't you just take a moment to recalibrate just a little bit? Everybody's got the, everybody, you know, what, you know, what, what gets your attention more than, say, losing a few hundred thousand dollars of your job or your retirement? kind of gets your attention? So you might want to, now, do you want to despair about that, sackcloth and ashes? Or do you want to say, I know a God who intends beautiful things for me. The most beautiful thing there ever was was Christ. I know where Christ meets me. He meets me in the Eucharist. He meets me in the spoken word. He meets me in community. He meets me in the beggar. He meets me in the person in the box underneath the bridge. And it's completely clear then what I should be doing, engaging those people at those places. And that's heaven on earth. You see, this is just, this is nothing. You, you all, but, the, but the, the point of reading this book is for you all to be able to say that. For you all to be able to see it. I mean, it's not that we could take an hour and think about it. It's that it actually, sort of it comes to you instantaneously. Temptation comes and you say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's very difficult to sin when you have the name of Jesus on your lips. If you had a question long, ago, far away. There are some people in life who will take not only all you've got, but all all of everything that everybody in this room has got. There are just some people who can, their hurt is larger than we as human beings could actually feel. For those particular people, um, the remedy is this. You give them a doable prescription of encounter with Christ. So you don't sit with them all day But three times a week you talk to them and you remember them in your prayers every day and that's enough for you. One of the things that was early expressed in here is the weariness that many of you feel. My counter to that was that there are many of you who who are doing much too much of the wrong things. Much too much and too much of the wrong things. Too much of the wrong things by that I mean sometimes um, you care for everybody but yourself. Okay. So there are people who can absorb all you've got, and only Christ can fill them, and he can only fill them with just, like, mega doses of gospel stuff, okay? And the other thing is, is we kind of have to remember there are some things which go to mental illness and the demonic, which really, really are just at a different level, and they need a different kind of care. You know, I, I, you know, about once a year I bump into somebody that I'm pretty sure has a demon. About once a year it happens when it happens, that's really a different kind of experience and all bets are off we're doing something completely different with those people. So what you do with, with somebody like that, you sort of have to analyze it. And you remember, just, and this is going far afield, but I'll just tell you, you know, before you do an exorcism on everybody, you always send them for a complete physical and a complete psychological workup. Work and then, only then, do you seek the bishop's permission for an exorcism. That's not a bad general paradigm for how normal people should work. So if you have somebody particular in mind, I regularly say to people, "When's the last time you had a complete physical?" And I regularly say to people, "You probably need to see somebody about this because it seems to be a, a, a mind thing rather than a soul thing." It's very difficult to do. Hear this in the right way. It's very difficult to do thoughtful pastoral care for somebody who's utterly irrational or addicted. Okay, they just they just can't. They just there isn't the the normal engagement of life. Now you can do things like give them the Eucharist, right, and you can lay hands on them and pray for them and bless them, but in terms of progress in the Christian life it's very difficult for people who are addicted or utterly irrational. So you have to evaluate what's in front of you, but the normal prescription is, and we know how to do this, the normal prescription is a regular exposure to grace. People who don't bring their kids to church every week do not know the danger they put their kids into. Why do we commune kids earlier here? Because kids are in great danger. I mean, I just, for me, this this last couple of weeks with this whole letter thing has just been unbelievable. I and mean, I just, I'll just be real honest with you. I, I, it's just been, it's been unbelievable. We basically have said, bring your kids to church. And people have said, don't push me around. And, you know, my answer to that is, why don't you read the Ten Commandments? And not under, in a law way, read it in a way that is, if you don't bring your kids to church, you have two choices in life. You expose your kids to the demonic or to the angelic. Take your choice. But outside the Eucharist, outside baptism, it's the demonic. You know? Pay attention to the world. And on a day like this, when everything is going straight to hell, people just pay attention a little bit better. Right? It's not that we don't know what to do. We know what to do. I mean, this is the last sermon I preached. There's only one sin. Nobody can do what they're told. Nobody can do what they're told. That's the original sin. To Adam, to Eve, to Judas, to Peter, nobody can do what they're told. I don't trust you. You don't know what you're talking about. You're trying to push me around. You might not be right. It might not pay off. It doesn't suit me. I don't feel like it. Nobody can do what they're told. In times of great stress, do what you're told. Why? Because this is the story of the cosmos. This is it, Christ who comes as king, creating a new Eden, and on the way there, he will care for you body and soul within community. I mean, We could have written this. This is our story. Now, for the whole rest of the time that we read, what your job is to do is to begin to gather and categorize every biblical story you know so that when you bump into people suffering like this, you have something to say. And I encourage you, starting a few weeks ago, to say very simple things like, I can show you beautiful things. Or, Christ would never abandon you. Or, I can show you a way that Christ would never abandon you. Or, I can bring you, this is the best thing you can say, I can bring you to a community where beauty and justice reign. Want to meet my friends? Of course, if you all turn out to be jerks, you make a liar out of me and somebody else goes straight to hell. I'm being, I'm being very serious now. You know, why do you live in a community of kindness? So that other people will end up here. Why are you kind to other people? Why do I speak well of you and you speak well of me? So that people will find a place where they're not alone and not unloved. This is, it's so simple. It's, it's not difficult. There's only one thing: people can't do what they're told. Love me, honor my name, see you in church every Sunday. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't gossip. Be faithful to your wife and be happy with what you've got. It's not that hard. Do you find that difficult? It's not hard to understand. It's hard to execute. But then, you're, then you come all the way back to Gigi's question. Is you can either fight with it and say, God doesn't know what he's talking about, or he really didn't mean it when he said it. Or you can say, I'm a sinner, and I'm struggling with it. We love those kind of people, the first kind of people. We love them, but it's hard to like them. Right? I mean, this is, you know, it's it's not a wholly bad thing when we suffer. Yes, my friend. Absolutely. You want to be king. I don't want to be told what to do because I really have a really good idea. <laughs> <about> <laughs> <how to do. laughs> and this whole thing that's happening is just everybody's scrambling. I mean, we've just totally been captains of our faith for a hundred years that we can't even, so that those of us alive now can't remember when people realized they weren't the captains of their faith. So we live in a... So when it starts going crazy, it's like Oops, I might have been wrong. Oops, I'm out of control it's out of control now. How and then our Christian response because we're still I am, I shouldn't say me, I am a control free Christian, a white witch Christian. Yes. So I, am, uh, I do remember that discussion. I am. You know, show them the great answer and they'll be. You know what I'm saying? I, I might have made a mistake. I, I, thought, thought, you were, I thought, one one thought you were I thought you were one one. just this one, but I think you actually want to be all of these. I want to be all of and it's, it's 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 I I honestly think we, we don't want to be the You want to hear my You want to hear my one-line answer? You that's right. You, here's we my one-line answer. We want, to, we want to give them the whole package. Start to yep. You said to That's right. You said I never I never remember you said I never remember a time when I wasn't in, when I wasn't in control. You know what? Lunch. Oh, I mean, personally, no, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You never remember a time though that you weren't master. You weren't considered to be master of your own fate, right? That's sort I of what totally you. Right. In, in every way in my when we were at lunch with Father Patrick, we um, you know, it's fun because you get. Uh, we said, "Do you commune infants?" And he said, "Yes, we do." And then he said the most interesting thing. He said, "They never remember a time when they didn't have the Eucharist." I was like, whoa, chalk one up for the good guys. So you never remember a time, and I don't mean you personally, but you never remember a time when you weren't considering that you were captain of your own fate? Those kids never remember a time when Jesus wasn't master of their fate.